0: Hello, my name is Justin Kluwer, and I'm here today with... Will Sloan. And you're listening to The Important Cinema Club. And today,
1: we're following up the original with something just as good. Yeah, that's right. We're doing an episode on sequels. Boy, Justin, it's the summer. It was 27 degrees Celsius today. Nothing like getting out of the heat, going into a nice air-conditioned auditorium, popping some corn, you got your brewski or I don't want to think...
0: That's why I'm going to watch a sequel, which is just pure entertainment. You roll Godfather 2 and let me enjoy it. (laughs)
1: Big blockbuster. The sequel to a movie that you love. Favorite character's back. The Hangover Boys are here. Oh, man. It's Independence Day once more. Resurgence. Oh, man. Another trip to Jurassic World. (laughs)
0: Yeah. Hey, Jurassic Park 3 is the best of the sequels, but that's for our episode on... What is that? Jurassic Uh, Park
1: Joe Johnston? (laughs)
0: Yeah, our Joe Johnston (laughs) episode. (laughs) Yes, ladies and gentlemen, we're talking... Talking about sequels, much maligned, known as just pure exploitation. And we watched three for this
1: episode. First of all, that's an antiquated notion, because, mm. of course, there was a time in the 70s, movies like The French Connection 2, The Sting 2, <laughs> movies that were just cash grabs.
0: Oh, and, I prefer John Frankenheimer's French Connection 2 to William Friedkin's.
1: And it was just, you know, an assumption that the sequel is never as good as the original. It just it just repeats the, the formula. And isn't that the problem with Hollywood? There are no original ideas anymore. It's just sequels.
0: Wait, where are you getting at? That sequels are good now?
1: Well, what I'm getting at is we evolved past sequels and now we have cinematic universes. (laughs) There are no sequels anymore.
0: (laughs) Uh, I mean, they try, but most of the time you're right. They're setting up, hopefully, a franchise. While most of the films that we're talking about today are sequels because the first film made money... They never thought the story would continue, and they went, oh, okay, um, we could, you know, there's an IP here we can make money on.
1: Bring in that dough. Now, as you said, we talk, we watched three movies this week, and there was a methodology to the selection here.
0: I suggested we watch Exorcist 2, that being a kind of reinvention of what the first one is. John Borman, who made the picture... Didn't want to try to tap in again to what made the first one successful.
1: Totally different. Mm -hmm. Another movie that we watched this week, which we'll get to, is Return to Oz from 1985, which is an inversion of the Mm -hmm. first one. Not a complete repudiation.
0: Yeah. You could almost talk about it as a long gap sequel. But there's a lot of elements that go into how it got created that actually doesn't make it that, mostly because it's a completely different studios and they didn't have the rights to the original that people know and love. And finally, we watched Jaws 2, because we had to watch a movie that was a literal ripoff of the first one. But before we get to those, when you think sequel, what's your favorite one, Will? Because I know what your favorite one is. Um, I, I don't know.
1: What is my favorite one? Batman Returns. Oh, yeah, that is my favorite <laughs> sequel. I love that movie.
0: Can you guess my favorite sequel? Come on.
1: Uh, Evil Dead 2.
0: Yeah, you know it. And that's You know an indication that people always use of like oh well sequels are not all bad no they're not just like not all remakes are bad you got your flies you got your things you got your blobs but most remakes are bad, just like most sequels are bad.
1: So, Exorcist to The Heretic from 1977, coming four years after the William Friedkin original. This one directed by John Boorman of Deliverance and Zardoz.
0: So, I heard that they offered the original Exorcist to John Boorman. That's how hot he was at the time. And he turned it down because he said, I'm not interested in films about evil, and I don't want to make a film that essentially seems to be torturing a girl the entire running time. He was not wrong on either count, but then why you would go see him to make the sequel when he doesn't like the things that people reacted to about the original is odd.
1: This movie, you know, it wasn't a complete financial disaster, but it was a big financial disappointment, and was, at the time, considered one of the worst movies ever made. Mm-hmm. So much so that in the Medved Brothers book, the Golden Turkey Awards, it was voted number two. Wow! Worst film of all time. Under
0: Plan 9 from Outer Space? Under
1: Plan 9 from Outer Space.
0: So, had you seen it was just The Heretic before? I believe I had. I remembered nothing about it.
1: Yeah, I saw it in high school, and I watched it again this week, and it was very much as i remembered it mm-hmm.
0: i actually enjoyed it quite a bit mm-hmm. until i was like "Ah, oh, man it's kind of overplaying it's welcome i should have watched the other edit where john Borman went in a week after the film was in theaters and cut out something like 25 minutes on every print
1: fuck man i wish i'd watched that instead yeah. of the 117 minute version but the plot of this film reagan played once again by linda blair uh, she's in college now or it's, or it's college, right? She's studying dance at mm, uh, New she's York.
0: An adult at this point. basically a yeah.
1: Young adult. She remembers nothing of the possession of four years ago. Or does she? Perhaps her memories are suppressed because she's having bad dreams. She's sleepwalking. She's almost falling off buildings. So, uh, Max von Sydow is dead, although he cleverly appears <laughs> in a, uh, flashback sequence. Yep. So they get his protege, Richard Burton, playing Father Lamont, who discovers that she's possessed by a demon called Pazuzu, who is an African demon. And working with Louise Fletcher as the uh, doctor who treats her... Uh, Louise Fletcher has this weird hypnosis brainwave synchronizing technology, which she uh, attaches to Linda Blair and it creates another dimension. You're on a different space that you could. And when I first heard the premise for
0: Exorcist 2, I was like, oh, man, that sounds great. They go to like some alternate like dreamscape
1: reality. No, not really. (laughs) Well, they make a connection with James Earl Jones, who is an African scientist who was possessed by Pazuzu as a child. You do hear the word Pazuzu a lot in the film.
0: (laughs) Laugh every time you hear it.
1: Uh, An actual demon from Babylonian times. And it is pretty much the opposite of the first Exorcist movie. The first one is that William Friedkin style. It's gritty it's got that you know docu-realist thing uh the second one is going for something dreamlike like an italian horror movie
0: it's essentially an italian ripoff of the exorcist film a um the visitor if you will
1: the first one is streamlined and efficient but this one has a very complicated mythology where you get to like the demon is kind of mysterious in the first one but in this one you learn all about.
0: i mean if you're making a sequel to the exorcist and you're going all right I want to kind of tap into what people liked about the first one. What did they react to? It's pretty obvious that it's in that sense, kind of like a middle-class living being destroyed by a force that you do not understand. And this innocent child that you've seen day in day out is someone completely different. And she's
1: doing horrible things. Mm -hmm. She's defiling her own body. Basically her pure innocent body with, with this horrible demon
0: and John Borman threw all of that out the window and nothing in the Exorcist Two heretic is grounded. From the get-go, you're in this like um research lab that is all reflective surfaces. It looks like a maze of some kind. Uh-huh. And you never get like an everyday sense. So it just doesn't mean anything, yeah.
1: in the first movie, you're really looking at the demon from outside. It's, it's a cold, it's lazy to call it documentary-like, but it's an objective view of the demon. Whereas in this one, you're strapped into this brainwave machine and you're traveling around the, around world, the world. With world
0: with Ned Baby. <laughs> with Ned Baby, Baby,
1: and you're looking at James Earl Jones in a bee costume. <laughs> yeah,
0: that's And it's right.
1: a kooky dreamscape. And it's not scary.
0: No, it oh. is definitely not scary. But I can see what John Borman is doing. Like, in the long version, like, he wants to almost lull the audience into a form of hypnotism. That's why it's a light flashing on and off that the viewer is forced to stare at mm-hmm. for seemingly 30 minutes at time. It is
1: a bit of a boring movie.
0: Yes, it is. For all of its extravagance, and I really enjoy the weird MGM backlot Uh, to a lot of the sequences because they never left the country so all the African scenes are shot in Hollywood USA Uh, and that would explain why Martin Scorsese likes the movie so much well Martin
1: Scorsese had it on his film comment guilty pleasures list where he wrote a rather beautiful blurb that I still don't quite understand (laughs) He, he says something like You know, it's like the book of Job can can pure goodness invite upon itself pure evil.
0: Because like at the end, the whole central conceit of the film is that there's a race of mutants. Let's call them X-Men that are being (laughs) created by God, to fight off the demons. And the reason that these X-Men are being possessed by the um, demons is because they are pure goodness. As the opening exorcism goes, the woman who's possessed by the demon catches fire. She goes, why am I possessed? I'm a healer. And that's because the demons are attracted to this next level of evolution. And, you know, at the end of the film, (laughs) Linda Blair's powers is to wave her arm in the air like this, which makes all the locusts go away. You know what? You'd be terrified of this film if you're scared of locusts. Yeah.
1: It's got good scenes. Yep. Locust scene is good. Yeah. Um, not exciting. Not really scary. But it looks it looks good. Mm-hmm. I agree with Paulie and Kale that it looks good. There's nothing to grasp onto. And it's boring. It is boring pretty boring i would like to see the shorter version
0: even the climax with like the whole exorcist house like bursting and falling apart you're kind of like because it doesn't grasp onto you don't even really know what's going on i listened to a commentary by a fan that's on the screen factory blu-ray and he's like oh yeah you got to understand here that they're actually in an alternate dimension where people can't see what's going on which is why they're not reacting i'm like well the movie doesn't clarify that in any way you're just completely lost as to what's going on and because you're so unmoored there's nothing even
1: disconcerting about what you're seeing. So, you know, nice try. That's yeah, nice try. Not one of the worst movies ever made.
0: No, it's a complete misunderstanding of the material that they're sequelizing.
1: But well, it's it's a, an attempt to do something different.
0: Yeah, an extrapolation, I guess. Yeah. But it's never going to please anybody who enjoyed the first Exorcist film. Oh, and
1: uh, Linda Blair is a cipher. Oh, she's not good. <laughs> not, not much to grasp onto. I enjoyed uh, Richard, <laughs> Richard Burton's, Burton's <laughs> sweaty performance. <laughs> yeah.
0: Probably the um, alcohol induced sweat. (laughs) But, you know, I would recommend people to check it out if they're curious. Certainly. Absolutely. Uh, So the second
1: film, Return to Oz. A lot of people have memories of watching this one as a kid. And it giving them nightmares. I was not one of those children. I saw it on TV as a kid and I didn't like it. Mm. The Wizard of Oz was probably the first movie I ever saw and definitely the first movie I ever loved. So, I mean, as a four or five year old, I was not that receptive to this film in which... Uh, Dorothy is being given electroshock therapy to rid her of the memories of Oz. And then when she goes back to Oz, it's a dilapidated hellscape where the yellow brick road is all fucked up and the Emerald City is destroyed.
0: As a person who never had any attachment to the original Wizard of Oz, I love Return to Oz. Uh It's does all the stuff that the first one didn't really do that much for me so wow Return to Oz well I don't like I, we talked about this in a Wizard of Oz episode it doesn't do anything for me oh
1: my god you don't like the Wizard
0: of Oz I like it but yeah. I don't. I, I have no attachment to it okay. like it's not it, it's not a movie that I'm like ah yes I never watched it when I was a kid and when I saw it later on I was like eh this is good okay. it's imaginative and it's colorful but I'd rather the miserable version with tons of practical effects
1: okay that, that's that's very interesting because as I was watching return to Oz this time Mm -hmm. very much hoping to enjoy it and enjoying much of it yes you know there's lots to like here these uh insane gigantic sets the the some of the practical effects like the characters you know dorothy yeah. meets new friends this time there's tiktok the kooky uh, uh soldier robot metal man and but in particular there's jack Pumpkinhead, who is uh imagine jack skellington but live action and with a pumpkin for his yeah. head. and he looks uh crazy and even some of the old characters that you know and love like the the scarecrow he looks crazy and oh, you know, i i love how the tin man
0: looks all the characters are designed in a way that it would seemingly be impossible for a human being to be in these costumes. I mean, Jack Pumpkinhead is a human a few times, but most of the time he has these long spindly arms and he's like six feet tall. So there's nobody in the costume. It's all puppeteers.
1: Well, uh, there's also the Wheelers who are the movie's equivalent of the flying monkeys. They're these, Terrifying. Uh, <laughs> they really are terrifying. I mean, they look like, I mean, the movie looks more like something like Labyrinth than mm-hmm. it looks like The Wizard of Oz.
0: So, So would I have liked Return of Oz if I'd seen it as a kid? Probably not. I think I would have still found it a little dull and the darkness would have gotten to me. There's a sequence with a princess who takes her head off and has cabinets filled with heads that is straight out of Mario Bava and is very disturbing.
1: That's a very striking scene. I I like the evil princess's palace with Mm -hmm. all the mirrors, crazy costumes.
0: I think what I would have reacted to was... Feruza Balk as Dorothy Very because good. her Dorothy is different from Judy Garland because Judy Garland even as a kid or when I saw the movie it was like someone too old to be playing that role mm-hmm. while Feruza Balk also looks a little odd she looks like kids I would know and I would have responded to her positive attitude throughout there's a moment where TikTok breaks down And the evil princess grabs Dorothy and brings her upstairs. And TikTok's like, I'm sorry, I didn't wind myself up. And Dorothy, who is seemingly being dragged to her doom, goes, it can't be helped, TikTok. It's okay." Yeah. Like she's always positive in the way that she approaches things. And there's no note of falseness to these reactions, to these reactions, to these horrifying things going on around her. She
1: gives the movie a much needed grounding Mm -hmm. force. I would just say that when people talk about how, what they love about this movie, they say, well, it's the darker version of Oz. Mm-hmm. And I think the original Wizard of Oz like had the formula. So like, it has scenes that are beautiful and colorful, and it has scenes of such joy like the Munchkin Land, but it's also terrifying at times for a kid, you know?
0: I think what people react to Return of Oz is maybe not the darkness of it, but the deconstruction of what you know and love and has become... Common in pop culture. Uh-huh. It's like you have seen all these things. Like Return of the Oz could not exist without the NGM version of Oz. Yeah. But now see it desaturated. The Yellow Brick Road is completely destroyed. I, the director of the film, Walter Murch, Actually said he uh, based it on Wisconsin Death Trip, which is a famous collection of photos of the derelict like Wisconsin wasteland.
1: Yeah, that's interesting to me in theory. Mm -hmm. Oh, but I I love to see it on screen. In practice, I look at it, it's like, boy, this is really not fun to look at.
0: But I think the difference between you and me is that you... In your heart, like, you love The Wizard of Oz. And yeah. to see that besmirched bugs you. Like, the way that you say that the designs, that they're different, kind of take you aback a little bit. I'm like, oh no, I like the designs y- better. You
1: know, it probably does bug me a little bit. But, like, I also genuinely think that the original movie, it's like there's not much to improve on there. It's like, it's like the mix of I would scary argue, stuff and fun stuff is perfect.
0: Something that I would have never re- recognized as a kid, but as an adult is that Dorothy is very proactive in return to Oz in mm-hmm. a way that she's not in the wizard of Oz. Well, sure. I mean, it, it's her six months later yes.
1: and uh, she's been to Oz before. Mm-hmm. And so she's taking a more proactive.
0: So way. as a kid, it would have probably like, I would have been like, Oh, I like a kid being involved that way. I'm lying. I would never mm-hmm. realize that as a kid. I'd be like, woo these pumpkins oh my god i'm so scared
1: the okay i I know it's not fair to compare it to the Mm. original one but um since that is the movie that it sets itself up for comparison with like The original one allows you moments of awe. Mm -hmm. Like it allows you to look at the Emerald City or Munchkin Land and be like, wow, look at this. And Return to Oz wants to repel you. Like it doesn't want you to to feel awe. I think
0: that there's awe, but I think that Walter Murch, who directed this film, made a smart decision is that he cannot recreate the feeling of Wizard of Oz. So why even try? Like in the fabric of this film... Is the Wizard of Oz structure meeting new friends, doing stuff with them, but at the same time, it's not trying to recreate what happened before. There's no songs, mm-hmm. it's not very colorful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that was a very smart decision. Now, Walter Murch, who was most famous as a sound designer- And an editor, also. Yeah, who worked on- um, Godfather, Apocalypse Now. Star Wars. Mm -hmm. Um, This was his first and last directorial debut because during shooting, he had a nervous breakdown and was fired. And it wasn't until uh, George Lucas and Francis Ford Coppola came and like, I believe they directed a few scenes and kind of got him back on board that he was able to complete the picture.
1: I think all the movies that we're talking about on this episode suffered from very heavy studio interference, Mm -hmm. and all of them probably would have been better if they do not
0: I don't know if Return to Oz suffered from studio interference. I would say the opposite, because Exorcist Two, The Heretic... John Borman was left alone. Okay. And that's why the movie is the way that it is, is that okay. he could do whatever he wanted. And it actually brought an end to that kind of like, you just come back with the final product, era of studio <laughs> filmmaking, before Heaven's Gate finally closed those doors permanently. Right. And Return to Oz, I think, is also a articulation of like one person's very personal vision. If a studio was more involved in this, they'd be like, what the hell are you doing? Uh, <laughs> like, give us the Tin Man, give us the Lion. Don't give us them petrified for 98% of the movie. <laughs> and I think that even like the friends that Dorothy meets in this movie, like Jack uh, Pumpkinhead, mm-hmm. is so sad. Like, yeah. he thinks that Dorothy is his mother the entire time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think that as an adult, I respond to it. As a child, I would have been very disturbed by it. Mm-hmm. Like, not in a like, oh, I like this. I, it would have been like, okay. That means Jack Pumpkinhead doesn't have a mother. There's the implication that he wasn't alive and probably won't be alive and brings his own mortality into question when he's like, make sure I'm not rotting. I'd like to make to see the world before I rot away. <laughs> you know, it's
1: funny. And one of the reasons why the original Wizard of Oz probably meant so much to me as a kid is because it taps into those primal childhood fears mm-hmm. about, you know, being lost. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, there, you know, there's the scene in the original Wizard of Oz where she's looking into uh, the Wicked Witch's like magic ball And she sees Auntie M, like going, Dorothy, Dorothy, where are you? And then she fades into the witch going, Dad, Dorothy, where are you? (laughs) (laughs) That's such a a horrifying thing for a kid. But at least the Wizard of
0: Oz will give you moments of happiness or a song. While Return of Oz does not have that. Like the ending would have disturbed me immensely as a child that Dorothy has to make a choice. I'm speaking of when she has to pick an object Mm -hmm. or she'll be turned into like teapot or a table. And all her friends... Have, that's already happened to them, so she's completely alone. That's scary for sure. a kid to make those choices. Also amazing practical effects. Love that the monster is a giant stop-motion guy. <laughs> I,
1: I do love the claymation,
0: yeah. Yeah. And the insane climax where in a tip to the hat to, um, I, I guess, the original or probably its source material, the monster is just destroyed by an egg and melts in a horrifying fashion. That reminded me of, like, Raiders of the Lost Ark. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh,
1: so I definitely enjoyed Return to Oz more than I enjoyed the final film we're discussing. Oh, God. Jaws 2, which... Just Justin and I just watched.
0: So Jaws 2 has been on my list to re-watch for a while. I saw it when Why? Jaws came out. I saw it when Jaws came out. And I said, I thought, oh, well, Jaws 2 must have some of the same thrills as Jaws. There was a three and a four. I assume that it was successful in some way to prompt these movies. I read the Jaws 2 log, which was just a sequel to the original, very famous Jaws log written by Carl Gottlieb, the screenwriter of the first one, Jaws 2 log not as good it was written by just a journalist and the film still had a lot of problems its original director the um man who made let's scare jessica to death was fired a few weeks into filming they got it in a tv guy who doesn't really have any notable credits you would know that when you watch jaws 2 and they finished it off and the final movie
1: is a slog boy 116 minutes justin and i just watched it on netflix felt like a week of my life a complete misunderstanding
0: of what people liked about the first jaws well,
1: uh, well i would quibble with you a little bit because it replicates the first jaws rather closely at <laughs> with times. none of the suspense <laughs> so here's what happens it's you know a year later two years later i don't know but it's the same beach community roy scheider is still the what is he the sheriff the sheriff the, the yeah. sheriff yeah and there's there's the mayor is still there having survived re-election despite not having closed <laughs> the beaches in the first movie and wouldn't you know it, there's another shark. Is he the same shark? Maybe he's another shark. No, nah, I think the first shark blew up. So. <laughs> I like to think it's the same shark. Yeah,
0: that he's just kind of like, like a werewolf. They didn't kill him the right way, so he just yeah. reformulates himself. Yep, and he's on the beach. Uh, He's introduced in an opening sequence where he kills two divers in the
1: lamest way possible. And Roy Scheider believes that this was no boating accident.
0: People don't believe him again. Oh no, the boating accident is when the shark kills two people and then someone
1: accidentally blows themselves up. That was the best scene of the movie. Should have opened the film, to be honest. So Roy Scheider goes to talk to the mayor and the mayor says, listen, buddy, you can't think that everything is a shark attack. He goes to the town council and they're like, listen, buddy, you can't think everything is a shark attack. Listen, you're not gonna win the lottery twice in a row will ya? Later he's you know playing lifeguard at the beach and he sees what he thinks is a shark he starts waving his gun around get out of the water get out of the water but uh, no it was just a fish
0: and he gets fired from his position and
1: then the movie switches to a hundred teens who go boating so we see the teens near the beginning of the movie and they're all getting on a boat and it's a lot of teens you can't keep track of them all No, but you think okay well this is gonna be like a slasher
0: yeah and that's what the original conception of the film was it was a bunch of teens went out on a bunch of boats they got trapped by uh the shark and they were all killed one by one it had a massive body count it, into like the double digits in its original draft and it also had a more interesting take on where amity the town would be after a shark attack it was all closed up it nobody wanted to visit it anymore because there had been a shark attack which would make sense if a shark had killed a bunch of people on the beach It probably would be closed for a long time and people would be wary to go back. You can imagine what it could look like because that's what the director's Let's Scare Jessica to Death or his Christmas film Prancer looks like. He has a very particular style and it makes sense. It's a radical departure from what Spielberg did, but I think it would have made an interesting Jaws film. That is not the version that we get. We still have all the teens. Almost none of them get murdered, but they're still... 30 of them and you can't tell any of those white kids apart.
1: Well, we see them at the beginning and then, you know, an hour goes by while Roy Scheider is uh, going through the motions. <laughs> yep. And then finally we see the teens again. And it's like, oh yeah, the teens were in this movie. And then they go out and a couple of them get killed by the shark. I think we see a bit more of the shark in this one than we see. It's in the
0: jumping out of the water. It gets scarred right away. So it has a two-faced thing going on.
1: Sometimes you see its jaw chomp like a big mouth billy bass. <laughs> yep.
0: <laughs> that brought me and Will to our
1: feet and applauding. Wait, I I enjoyed whenever it looked like a big puppet. But there's no
0: tension, there's no suspense, there's no danger, there's nothing in this film.
1: Yeah, you well, in the first one, like the shark is this real existential threat. It's like, okay, this is a huge beach community. If they close the beach community, there would be very serious repercussions on lots of people's careers. But there's a shark there and and like the shark could strike at any moment. And also it's like the shark. How can you stop this shark? There's no way to stop the shark. Mm-hmm. And there's never any of the, that sense of either stakes or urgency, or there's never that hopeless feeling in it, this one. I
0: mean, they had it. They had it. a bunch of kids in a boat attacked by a shark. And you have all the like dimensions of the kids on these multiple boats as a shark could pop up at any moment. So it's like a minefield movie. But you don't get any of that. Roy Schneider just drives the boat for the last hour of the film. And Roy
1: Schneider does not seem like his heart is in it.
0: No. This was a film that he had a contract with Universal. He had to deliver two or three more pictures. And Universal said, if you make Jaws 2, we'll end your contract. <laughs> <laughs> and it feels like... That's the performance that he's giving the, I can't wait to go down to my cottage kind of feel. You've seen Jaws 3, right? Yes. Good. I mean, more fun than Jaws 2? Way more fun. Way more committed to the kind of thrills that you want from a Jaws
1: movie. I think Jaws 2 has mostly gone down in history as having the tagline, just when you thought it was safe to go back to the water.
0: (laughs) Yes. It has actually a really good poster where it's just like the water and just one fin in the distance, and you don't really see it, and the sun is setting. So it's the idea of like, oh, everything looks normal, but if you look like a Where's Waldo poster, oh no, there it is. But is this a good sequel?
1: No. I mean, it's not a good movie. No, it's not a good sequel. It's, it just does the same thing as the first one, but less well. The
0: producers got involved, and they said, we want, what the first movie had, but we only have a vague understanding of how that was executed. It does
1: not build on the mm. Roy Scheider character sufficiently.
0: No, it doesn't. His wife is in the movie, and then she's suddenly not. <laughs>
1: the kids are not interesting. No. And how does it build on the first? The first movie, as I said, has this uh, sense of fear, this sense of danger the sense that anything can happen, and this movie doesn't have that. And also, you know, a shark is not that exciting a character.
0: It's not. Um, You only
1: kill people so many ways. (laughs) It's not like Jason, who can kill people lots of ways.
0: So if it was Jason in the water, then you'd be all in. great. (laughs) Yep. So, I mean, I'm glad that we were here to make the definitive statement that Jaws 2 is not good.
1: So, sequels. Yes. Um, You know what? Hollywood Today, it's all sequels and remakes, and when are they going to write an original story?
0: (laughs) Well, if they do, we probably won't go see it, because, man, I need to see Spider-Man Far From Home. Well,
1: there's uh, great movies on streaming all the time now, such as Murder Mystery.
0: <laughs> the new Adam Sandler picture, which I was shocked to learn that my partner Emily and Will had watched.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, what I got I do not and watch like, it.
0: And like Neo in the Matrix, I just dodged that bullet. <laughs> <laughs> so, Justin, do we have any letters today? We do have letters. Our first letter is from Stephen Vag, and it goes, Chuck Norris. Hey, Justin and Will. Apologies if you've covered this already and I've missed it, but I was wondering if you had any thoughts on the cinematic output of Chuck Norris, in particular his early 80s heyday. As Hong Kong action aficionados, I'd be keen to get your thoughts on this and other white kung fu action stars. E.g. Richard Norton, Michael Dudikoff, JCVD, legitimate action film royalty or mere pretenders. Love the show. Keep up the great work, Steven. P.S. I was listening to the episode on Polly Shore in the car and my four-year-old daughter cracked up every time Will did a Polly Shore impersonation. Hey, buddy. He may have created a new Polly Shore fan.
1: Well, you know, I'm all for people watching movies they enjoy. (laughs) Yeah, bringing joy to the world. Regarding Chuck Norris, I don't think he's a favorite of either of ours. No. I think that my perception of him is colored very heavily by his odious politics. Oh, boy. And also, frankly, the odious politics of his movies. (laughs) Yes. Like, he he is a real right-wing action star. I will say, though, that... He's also an animal warrior, as in, um, I think the film's called, like, Animal Warrior, where he morphs into a bear. He's not as funny as Steven Seagal, either. No. He's he doesn't he doesn't give you a lot as a presence, and he's, I know that's what's appealing to him for some people. He's but. not
0: very expressive. He's a cipher. He's like a bad actor. <laughs> yeah,
1: and like Steven Seagal is weird mm-hmm. on screen, and and Chuck Norris isn't. I will say though that Chuck Norris has been in some movies that I've enjoyed, Return of the Dragon well yeah Return of the Dragon Uh, but also I think what's that uh, Christmas one Invasion USA (laughs) yes I think it's very funny
0: (laughs) no one ever talks about the Christmas one but it does take place during Christmas yeah
1: Code of Silence is really good that's Mm -hmm. like
0: one of the top tier Chuck Norris uh, action films I like Delta Force but that's not because of Chuck Norris it's more the film that he's in
1: yeah he's made some some alright you know Mm -hmm. 80s action movies he could do worse but I think he's pretty minor Uh, like I don't like
0: missing action but I do love missing in action too Braddock. Yeah, it's a shame. I wish somebody would do some kind of canon film podcast where they could talk about this kind of stuff. Ah, perhaps one day a fellow named Matthew Kumar and, let's say, Justin DeClue would make a podcast called Loose Cannons which has 80 episodes and are available on the internet. If
1: only you didn't burn all your energy on those ones from before Golden and Globus took <laughs> yeah. over the
0: company. <laughs> but we did a lot of Chuck Norris films. We did That's Missing Action 1, Missing Action 2, we did Invasion Invasion USA. USA. So uh, if you want to hear more thoughts on that, check out that episode. And as far as Richard Norton goes, Great, love Richard Norton. Yeah, I love Richard Norton. Fought Jackie Chan, um, Benny the Twife.
1: Jet, or also. Uh, <laughs> oh, very amazing!
0: Cool. Michael Dudikoff, yeah, I like him. I'll take him. Yeah, JCVD, I, I like his presence. He's he's not actually that good a martial artist. He does a good splits. He does a great splits and he's very careful with his kicks. But I heard from a stuntman that JCVD was famous for always making contact. Not on purpose, but he was just a little bit sloppy, Uh, which is why his fights are the way that they are. But man, I'll take time cop over most films any day of the week. (laughs) Uh, Oh, also speaking of Peter Hyams, uh, Sudden Death, my favorite uh, Die Hard ripoff. I
1: really enjoy Sudden Death.
0: All right, so uh, that's it for letters. You can email us at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. And this week on our Patreon, what are we doing, Will?
1: We are talking about one of the classics of this century. It is David Lynch's Mulholland Drive. Did we like it?
0: I don't know. Will we have to pull out our mystery card out of the DVD to get that skeleton
1: key to understand it? Yeah, why does the cowboy reappear twice? (laughs) We answer the question.
0: Uh, Yeah, we should call the episode Mulholland Drive. Decoded. That's
1: right.
0: <laughs> and you can listen to that by becoming a Patreon subscriber at patreon.com slash theimportantcinemaclub. And it's $5 a month. Become a Patreon subscriber. We'd appreciate it. Next week, we're doing a Universal Horror Director. But not one that you've heard of. Oh, Wait, we're not doing Todd Browning? No. James Whale? We've already done him. Oh God, we've done everyone, haven't we? And in
1: fact, the Universal Horror Director is somebody who was only involved in Universal Horror a little bit. He's Mm -hmm. done all sorts of other things. He was an assistant director to Von Sternberg and Chaplin. He directed the Marx Brothers' first movie. He's done many film noir and comedies and this and that. He was an experimental filmmaker. One of the first American experimental filmmakers. He
0: was one of the first film brats. Like, a film fan before he actually made it to Hollywood and started making films. He was supposed to direct and got so close to making frankenstein and it fell out from under him there were posters made with his name on it
1: he was going to direct it with bella lugosi mm-hmm. and his name is robert flory mm. if you haven't heard of him and you probably haven't this will be your chance to be acquainted with one of the best b-movie directors of all time
0: that's what we're doing next week and until then i'm justin glue i'm will sly thanks for listening You know, Will, they're putting out all these 4K remastered Blu-rays. Number one, they're not in 4K. Number two, I'm like, do I need another copy of Lucho Fulci's The New York Ripper on Blu-ray?
1: Well, shucks. I don't think I do because, you know, I already own it. Mm -hmm. That's fine and it looks good. But, oh, God, now I'm on the internet. I'm (laughs) on uh, RockShockPop.com and I'm looking (laughs) at the screen uh, comparisons of the 2009 Blu-ray with the 2019 Blu-ray. And, God... It looks way better now.
0: (laughs) Well, there goes $50. I mean, that uh, set up was a little bit of a lie because I've never owned New York Ripper. So it would have probably um, affected my decision if I picked it up. But it is undeniable that these trashy exploitation films, all of them made by very famous directors, are being remastered to a hilarious extent at this point. To
1: bilk people like us out of money.
0: Is it to bilk, though? Because they, it's not a surface-level remastering. It's like a true, like, this is going to look better than it ever has. And the people that are doing it aren't doing, I don't know if you've seen stills from the original Blu-ray version of The Predator where they um, took all the grain out so it looked like they were made of plastic. Oh, hideous. Yeah, like this is, the people who are making this are spending the time, they're spending the money to bilk people like us out of money.
1: Sometimes I see, I'm holding this remastered version of the New York Ripper in my hand. 3-disc, limited edition, new 4K restoration. By the way, this is not buzz marketing for Blue Underground.
0: They did not send us copies. We paid with our hard-earned money. We're sucking.
1: And I, I'm looking at this and oh my god, look at all the interviews they There's have on. There's so here. many interviews. I mean there is more information about the New York Ripper on this disc than there is information about the New York <laughs> yeah. Ripper. I think they had to travel back in time and they, like find some more. Made shit up and, and it looks like stunningly good. And sometimes I see something like that come out and it's like, you know, this is like donating to charity. <laughs> Gotta keep Blue Underground going. So
0: we're in the golden age, and we've said this for years, of physical media and discovering film and treating films properly. When do we hit that wall where they're like, well, we can't remaster the New York Ripper again. We can't remaster Zombie. There's like a new remaster of Dawn of the Dead 1978 coming out. Like All the golden gooses will be cooked. And as we know from these companies, and they talked about it, like, most of the times they work on a nostalgia base. Like, Vinegar Syndrome is not going to release one of their films for $50, Mm -hmm. and someone's going to buy it. Mm -hmm. People will buy a Lucho Fulci film. Do you think they'll be, like, 10 years from now? It's like, it's done. Companies kind of, like, you know...
1: Well, there's always a new generation of people, mm. and there are always new... Like pressings, new, like they're like, it's firm. out of print. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like,
0: Blu-ray, we've never really talked about this, but they figured out their market. Like, Vinegar syndromes, the day they started putting things in slipcases, and people were like, I will spend 30 extra dollars for that slipcase, it was little dollar signs appeared in their eyes. Madness. Vinegar Syndrome have like a Scrooge McDuck style vault of
1: money. I don't think they do. Do they? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I've how, how profitable is it to do enough a, that a they, restoration on memories within Miss Aggie?
0: They opened a <laughs> store and I've read that they're talking about opening other stores. Oh, good because they're them. making enough money doing this. Like they figured out the market like Severin figured it out as well is that people will spend 70 to 80 dollars for a remastered movies with a plushie from that movie and like a monster mask did you get
1: pieces with the puzzle i
0: did not get pieces with the puzzle that was a grindhouse release yeah Uh, yeah. i did get the tough ones with a bullet pen but i thank the stars every day that i am not that kind of collector like i do not need the you don't need the slipcase. like or the plush antropophagous little doll. Even though it's cool and it'd be fun to
1: have, it's not $50 more fun. You know, something I've learned from watching the YouTube videos of Cool Duder and Wet Movie um, is that at Best Buy and at Target and at Walmart, they all get different DVD editions (laughs) of the movie. So you can get The Force Awakens with a steelbook cover at Walmart and you can get The Force Awakens I hate steelbooks. with, with a extra making of documentary at target and you can get it with a lenticular cover at, at at the other store so you have to get them all to get them all
0: listen that's madness blu-ray distributors you put extra special features on it i'll buy it i'm a sap you give a lenticular cover or scream factory figured out with steelbooks like people started like they're re-releasing films with steelbooks oh madness uh yeah you don't got me i don't care yeah. <laughs> so it's like the illusion of tangibility of like ooh i'll learn more that's my kryptonite thankfully slipcovers that are always ripping on me and i can't get them into their cases is not i like when there's a commentary track love when there's a commentary track there should be no dvd without commentary track i'll tell you why cuz me and you will do it just yeah. contact us we'll do
1: it we'll do a commentary track <laughs>